Coffee Time Wednesdays with uh, the Prairie Farm Podcast. Can't hit us with the jingle. Do 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 do. Welcome back to Wake Up, Nick. Wake Up. Ah, uh, I'm awake. We had pizza today. It's Carol's birthday. The OG Hoxie. Yeah. Happy birthday to Carol. Happy birthday. Please remember that we are sponsored by that man wanting the fact that he wants you to know about conservation. That's what sponsors us. Also, he's turning 143. So if you think of it, give him a (laughs) shout out. Uh, He doesn't have social media, so you can just tag Hoxie Native Seeds and I'll make sure to get him. (laughs) (laughs) No, we had pizza, we had cake, and and I just recently got off the carnivore diet. And my, I forgot to tell you this, my stomach hurt after that pizza. And I had one piece of pizza and three small breadsticks, and my belly was hurting. Mm. Lightweight. Yeah, no, that it's a good thing. It's a good thing. And then I went to this meeting where I was supposed to speak at and they were going to feed me. And I didn't want to say no to dad because he had bought pizza for the team. So I ate a little bit of that. And then I went to this other meeting and I ate a little bit of that, but I didn't finish it. I felt rude. But uh, that's all right. And then it rained. There's no rain in the forecast. Out of nowhere. Yeah, it just stormed. We're not complaining. No. Even though it was a little inconvenient, we're both soggy right now. (laughs) Yeah, we're not soaking wet. We're just. We like rain. Soggy. Like, soggy as if, like, you just got out of a steam room, but you had all your clothes on, and then you're walking around, like, pit sweaty a little bit all day. Isn't it always, um, you know, like, surprising how cold raindrops are? Yes, it's terrible. I mean, it could be, like, 100 degrees outside, and that raindrop hits you, like, right on the back of your neck, and you're, like, looking for a winter coat. Yeah. And they were big drops of rain. Yeah. They were fat suckers. Coming from high in the atmosphere. All right. I'm going first this time. All right. I've got, don't look, Kent. I've got the 10 most endangered species in the United States, and you're going to try and guess a few of them. If you can just get any of the 10, I'll give you some points. They're not Uh, redeemable anywhere, but they're points. uh, I think it's pronounced Vakina. Vaquina, uh, it's like a porpoise, uh, like a dolphin that lives down, uh, I want to say in the Gulf of Mexico. Okay. Uh, I can stop you there and tell you that's not on the list. That it should is. be because there's like nine of them left in existence. Really? Yeah. That's crazy. So if, if, if that's not on the list, then your list is garbage. <laughs> my list is wrong. What is my list of? Um, my list is ecowatch.com. I'm not, I'm not saying it's, <laughs> not saying it's the most credible list. I'm not, uh, this is not, this is not the authority. It's just, uh, and these are, this is only in North America. It's in the United States or coasts of the United States. Yeah. So the, the Vaquina, I think is how you spell it. I think it's spelled V A Q U I N A. There was a bird that's on this list that got down to six. And now there are, I think, 400 of them. Hmm. Uh, is the, that condor, California condor? Yeah. Nice. Nice, dude. Uh, there's some really interesting, like, I'm trying to think of what the the right term, is, the right bio, biological term is. Is it sexual dimorphism? Where I believe it's California condor. Man, could I be like, you know, totally wrong here. But I think I heard once that, they uh, were observed in captivity that um, that 
is either how did it go now? I think it was like a developing, like a juvenile bird um, was, was able to uh, reproduce as a male or a female. I, I think that happened with those. Hmm. Um, but I can't, there's something to that. I need to, I need to study it out more and maybe report back, but I listened to an interview recently. Very interesting birds though. Yeah. They're the California. biggest birds in yeah. North America. Biggest yep. birds. Well, the ones native. There's emus here now, but they are native. Right. But um, I listened to a very interesting, it was just a little blip on a podcast, but they were talking about a study where there are certain chemicals that if you um, put, you know, like douse those chemicals on these frogs at like a very high level, oh, yeah. they will physically change sex. Yeah, I think that's what happened here. Like, it wasn't that it had both capabilities. I think it cha- It was able to change its sex. Re- and there had to be some kind of environmental stimulus that caused it to do that. But I might I might be CNN, off on that. MTV. Something I, I that was think the I heard a few stimulus. years ago. But All right. Um, okay, hit, hit me with on? another one. Uh, boy. Um Uh, trying to think things that are just kind of on the brink. Um, there's a couple that you're gonna be like, oh yeah, duh. Oh, um, is there a salamander that's on there? No, not that I saw. There is a a frog. There's a a specific kind of frog. The one that I thought was the coolest looking thing I've ever seen was the Florida, um, the Florida panther. Just oh, the coolest yeah, looking yeah. thing. So the Florida Panther, that's an that's an interesting ecological thing. You know, like I guess you could even say debate right now, or like controversy. Probably controversy is a better term. Because they were pretty much you know, all but extinct, kind of like these other things we're talking about. And uh because the only options you know for the way forward were inbreeding. You know, eventually, oh, yeah. like genetically, they were extinct. Yeah. You know, like the only thing. There was you, like a brother, could, one brother, one sister left. Well, and, or, or even if it wasn't, it, they were going to be in successive generations. Yeah. Right? Eventually, you're going to have inbreeding, you know, through cousins or, or siblings or. Yeah. Or, or worse. And uh, so they brought in Western. Uh, <laughs> You think about it hard enough. There can be worse. <laughs> uh, they, they brought in uh, Western, um, I guess we'll just say uh, puma species. Oh, and, so it's a little bit of a hybrid. Well, yes, and they, you know, you know, people in Florida feel, and I think they have, you know, pretty substantial evidence to back their feelings that this hybrid cat is maybe a little larger a little more aggressive i don't know if more aggressive but able to do more damage to the ecosystem Mm. you know kill more they don't have a lot of deer in florida they do have i mean it's not like they're in the deer are endangered there but they were more adapted to dealing with the true florida panther as opposed to this yeah. hybrid. And so what if it's it, like, the it. hybrid comes around the corner? It's like the size of a full-blown tiger. <laughs> yeah. like, I did not sign up to deal with yeah, that. Yeah, and, and there's a lot of them now from what I hear too. Man. They're, they're very populous. The 
Um, the other one is the manatee. Mm. The man. Yep. That, I mean, that one's classic. One. I'm not trying to sound insensitive, but you just look at that thing. That thing was on the way out. That thing did not <laughs> evolve to be able to sustain it's life like it, against predators. It's like the uh, Stay Puffed Marshmallow Man from Ghostbusters, <laughs> but in aquatic form. Dude, he, they're just, I mean, they're... Like a rolling marshmallow. I think people don't give credit to how freaking big those things are. They're huge. They're like a car. They're, yeah. like, they're like a horse. Yeah. They're like a horse that hangs out in the sea. And that is nuts. But something I found really interesting is half of these species, uh, half pause. of these species are in Florida because Florida is so developed. You know what I mean? Yeah. Florida's getting so, like there's a couple. There was a turtle on the list. You know, it's just like where all the developments happening. Crazy! All these uh, species are going extinct just because we really like our beachfronts. Yeah, yeah. I think uh, boat propellers have really done a number on manatees. Yeah. Well, and then uh, climate change because. They can't handle, basically they're really fickle. They're a little bit, they're kind of divas and they can't chase food. So they just eat like grass that's on the bottom of the ocean. Mm. And look, man, they were on their way out. They're like, they were not. (laughs) Well, I hope they can stick around. Oh man. They were like. We believe in you, Florida manatee. Yeah. We, I want to give one a hug one day. (laughs) You'll have to go underwater to do that. (laughs) Anyway. So what what else was on the list? You got. You had a fox, some sort of fox. You had uh, red wolf. Oh, yeah. I should have guessed the red wolf. Yeah. Blackfoot ferret, which I guess is the only ferret native in North America. Okay. Now, is the black-footed ferret, I'm pretty sure that's what's known as a Lazarus species, where um, it was believed to be extinct. And then we found it. And then a farmer, I think it was in Wyoming, a rancher in Wyoming, one of his dogs or something was tearing into a critter and he found it was a it was a black-footed ferret and he was good enough to like collect it and bring it to a biologist because he i mean he was educated enough to know hey this is significant yeah and that's fascinating i think they so i think there weren't any living black-footed ferrets left but they had the dna off of that one that that rancher found and, and they then like back in, in different ferret. yes back in 2020 i believe they cloned a black-footed ferret and uh so i think uh yeah they they uh i think that's the same species and then well, the, the red big... the red wolf is like what we were talking about earlier with uh florida panther um their their numbers have gotten so critically low that um i think it's believed that they you know they essentially are genetically extinct. It's just a matter of time, you know. Mm. So they're still yeah. they're still reproducing. They're still, um, you know, they, I, th- I believe they live down in the Carolinas. Yeah, and um, I think North Carolinas especially. And, I mean, everyone's going to claim they see stuff that's cool, but I may have seen one when I was uh, down in North Carolina this this uh, last summer. I saw this animal that was very. It was, it was either that or a coyote, but if it was a coyote, it was a little bit larger mm-hmm. than what I, you know, I've seen coyotes all the time. And it definitely had like a, you know, a reddish, what do they call that? Brindle kind of color to it. Well, this says, and this was, I believe, written in 2022. This, n- yeah, 
This says that there's only 15 to 17 left in the world. Really? Red wolves, yeah. That seems lower than what I would have expected. Well, if, if that is the case, then I definitely didn't see one. It says in, <laughs> it says in 2012 they had the population over 100, but it has drastically dropped since then. You got the Blackfoot foot ferret. You got the loggerhead sea turtle, which is, you know, mm, yeah. in Florida. And I guess the sea turtles are a cornerstone species for coral reefs. I didn't know that. Keystone species? Keystone, thank you. Um, And uh, the Joaquin kit fox. Never even heard of this one. This is the only one that I'd never really heard of. Hmm. Um, And they basically look like a jackal. You know? Yeah. Um, Mississippi gopher gopher frog, which just looks like a a toad. I'd heard of that one. But I think I just heard about it because I have a friend who lives down there. And then you got your bluefin tuna, which is a classic and like super mm-hmm. expensive. And then woodland caribou. And those things are monsters. They're huge. Uh, you know, and interesting about caribou, I think I've mentioned this in previous podcasts, but it's worth mentioning again. Caribou used to be found throughout much of the, the United States, you know, throughout the lower 48, Iowa had caribou. And I think they were woodland caribou. Um, but in the seventies, caribou were extirpated from the lower 48, like, like, uh, the last, the last few that were found in the lower 48 blinked out and they still exist in Canada and Alaska. Um, but, uh, the person who I heard talking about this was Stephen Rinella on, on the meat eater podcast. And he talked about how. People really didn't seem to get too worked up about it. You know, like when, when you think about that, you know, you lose such a yeah. iconic animal or what I guess maybe not, but should have been an iconic animal from from its native range in the lifespan of, you know, all of us listening to this, our parents or even yeah. even some of our listeners lifetime. This was extirpated from, from yeah. here. That's. That's pretty, uh, you know, we need to be paying attention to these things. So it's a good thing to bring up, Nick. Yeah, I just was thinking about extinct or almost extinct species and uh, figured I'd look it up. But uh, the caribou, I'm pretty sure the caribou is just like breeding between an elk and a moose, and that's what you get. You just like put those two together. <laughs> no, they'd be much bigger if that was the case. Caribou, even though it looks big in that really? picture, they're actually I've they're, never they're seen nowhere near the size of an elk or a moose. What? I thought yeah, a caribou they're bigger was, than a deer for sure. But I thought they were bigger than an elk for sure. No, but they do have the largest antlers per body size, like pound for pound. They got the biggest antlers. Wow, that's beautiful. But not always. That would have been the Irish elk for all time. For all time, the Irish, Irish elk. And I just wish those suckers are still alive, man. Are they like prehistoric? Pale- uh, the Pleistocene. Pleistocene era, and they were in Ireland. Yep. Really? Yeah. Look that sucker. Irish up. elk. All right, what are you bringing to the table today? So, um, this is the time of year when we are, you know, really in the midst of harvesting. Carol's just out harvesting our world milkweed today. Um, we've been harvesting uh, wild burg last week, and um, uh, we've been hand harvesting butterfly milkweed for a few days. We hand harvested uh, Culver's root today, and. Um, uh, tomorrow we're probably going to be hand harvesting another one, wild quinine. Yep. And uh, wild quinine is an interesting species, tough to clean. 
And uh, looks, yeah, because you got to beat the crap out of it, don't you? Well, yeah, you got to run it through a debeater, but it's just got kind of weird shaped seeds that like getting snagged on mm. on screens, and they're super susceptible to uh, wind, so they blow around a lot. So it's it's a tough one to clean, but it is interesting. And this last spring, when I was out uh, ripping a big blue field to try and stimulate thicker regrowth. I was listening to the Lewis and Clark documentary. Uh, well, I shouldn't call it just a documentary. It's a, it was a biography, I guess you would say, or uh, a historical telling of the Lewis and Clark expedition by um, Stephen Ambrose. And um, is that the Undaunting Courage book? Yes, Undaunted Courage. Yep. Thank you. Yep. So, very well known book, one that I think everyone should listen to at some point or read at some point um, just because it's new, a critically important part of American, you know, for lack of a better term, modern American history. Yeah. Um, the Louisiana purchase just totally, <clears throat> totally transformed our country um, in some ways, you know, you could look at it as being a very successful thing. And, but in other ways, you know, there's for native Americans, you know, there's a lot of suffering that came shortly thereafter, uh, yeah. uh, as a result of the Louisiana purchase. And really as a result of the explorate, you know, the expedition. Uh, but anyways, when, when, when Ambrose is talking about that, he mentions, during the preparation phase of getting that expedition off the ground, you know, uh, especially Lewis, who is who is really truly in charge of the expedition, um, uh, he actually outranked uh, Clark, mm-hmm. but he he treated Clark as a um, peer. It, he even called him by the same rank that he was and he petitioned the uh, secretary of defense or, or whoever to give uh, Clark the same rank as him, but he denied him. But like all the guys on the expedition didn't know that. And so Lewis and Clark kept that between themselves. Hmm. But the reason I bring this up is Lewis is really the one who's making most of the preparations. Clark did some recruiting and I'm sure did some other, you know, helped round up, you know, some of the supplies and so forth. But Lewis was really the main decision maker on that. And one of the things he ordered was a bunch of quinine and it was the first I'd heard of it. And I was like, wait, what? You know, I was driving the tractor and, and, uh, we're, we were, uh, ripping at the big blue to try and get a, a nice stand of big blue this year. And, and, you know, I'm just sitting there I'm like, how have I never heard this before? And the reason they wanted that quinine was to treat malaria. And, mm. and, um, so, you know, that's like a major thing. You yeah. Know? And so, uh, it's pretty interesting, you know, because we have quinine here at wild quinine growing on, you know, on our farm here. It would have been a native prairie species at one time, you know, especially I bet you all the time they spent going through prairies, 
they didn't need to pack any. Yeah. <laughs> you know, if yeah. you just knew how to look for it, but they had no idea what they were getting into. Yeah. And, and they weren't, yeah, they, there were no prairies around, so they weren't like, oh, we'll have more well, of these prairies. I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't necessarily say that because, you know, remember when we talked to Dr. Benedict and he talked about where did these prairies, you know, like big blues them, he believes kind of start out in Virginia and yeah, we know but they weren't there. They're not prolific there anymore. Right. But I imagine there were still some, some pockets of prairie out East then at that time, but, um, uh, certainly more then than there are now, unfortunately. Um, but but anyways, so they grabbed they grabbed the wild quinine to bring along, and it just got me thinking: like, is this really the same thing that that we you know grow here on the farm? And it turns out, yes, it is. Um, a another conservation organization that um, we uh, associate with is the Xerxes Society, which is a, you know, kind of like uh, the the Monarch uh, Joint Venture. They are they are a, you know, pollinator advocacy group, I guess you could say. Yep. And the Xerxes was actually a species of butterfly that went extinct recently. Uh, so going back to the first part of this podcast, when you're talking about extinct species. Yeah. The Xerxes butterfly, which was a blue butterfly, I believe, um, went extinct and kind of inspired this this organization. So they had an article that talked about it and and doing some more research, looked at some stuff on PubMed and and of course Wikipedia and um, uh, there might have been one other uh, might have eh, I can't remember what the other one was if there was one, but they confirms yes it was wild quinine and it's related to uh, this tree species that grows in peru that spanish um i don't know if it's technically conquistadors at this point and it might have been kind of after that era but basically spanish uh interest holders down in south america after the conquerings of cortez and and that was of course more in central america but then um uh friends uh, Francisco Pizarro down in South America that opened up the floodgates for all these Spanish settlements in the new world. Right. And they were getting, and they fit farming. <clears throat> well, everyone was getting sick with malaria at this time. Oh yeah. And they found out, I don't know if they talked with natives and got the, you know, the idea or they just kind of discovered it by accident the bark from the, uh, I got to look up the pronunciation, the Google pronunciation here. Nick was looking at me when oh, I was yeah. doing this earlier. Well, because he kept listening to, he listened to it like eight it's times. It's a hard word to, it's a hard word to say. All right, I'm going to play it for everyone here. This is from the Google uh, uh, pronunciation thing here. So I'm going to turn up my volume. I'm going to put it on slow too. Cinchona. Cinchona. But it's not, it's spelled C I N C H O N A. So, Cinchona. Yeah, it's tough to, it's tough to get it down. So, Cinchona. So, it's related or, yeah, either related or it has the same chemical compound, which they just call quinine, Hmm. uh, in both of those plants. I wonder, because I was telling you, I was listening to a, a biography on on David Livingston, the mm-hmm. missionary adventurer cartographer that went yeah. through Africa, and he, and he was like a doctor. He had his own concoction of various quinines, or of a quinine that helped 
um, save a lot of his family members from dying from malaria. Well, when was when was he doing that? Oh, he would have been 1700s, maybe. Okay, no, yeah, so it would have been maybe it, later 1800s. It would have been known then for sure, because I think through what I was reading is like in the 1600s, like mid 1600s, when they when the Spanish started using the cinchona, cinchona, cinchona bark. Yeah, and actually, Lewis, I think, ordered some of that, but then also they they uh, they may have used. Uh, wild quinine as well or maybe they didn't they didn't yet know about wild quinine i'm not sure but late 1800s is when uh, livingston, livingston was around yeah okay but, but so that was his but but a lot fighter. of times they refer to that cinchona bark just as quinine because that's the oh maybe that's it was. the the medicinal agent in there is just known as quinine but wild quinine also contains you know how there were like three major prairies in the world at one point there was like south america had their major prairie the pompous prairies Mm. and then you had our uh north american prairies and then you had like eastern uh or eurasian prairies which if you think about it like they have mollusal soil um so they had all those species well then you bring those species over here that's why we have so many eurasian invasives yeah. it's because they had yeah. similar soil but we don't have the predators and the ecosystem checks and balances to go mm-hmm. against those uh, but i wonder i wonder if any species any spe- not genus any specific species was in all three places yeah that's a really good question that would be that, really that'd tough be, that'd be really interesting because there was out. basically no travel between them when prairies were getting established you know right. what i mean if, yeah that'd be that would be fascinating you know one of the evidences used for uh you know we believe that at one time the continents were in totally different places all connected even mm-hmm. you know the idea of pangea yeah um King one of, of the evidences for that is finding land-based animal fossils across oceans you know mm. so it's like they didn't swim there didn't fly there didn't yeah boat there how you know, so maybe, you know, they're absolutely, if you have animal species like that, I would think you could have plant species like I'm, that too. I'm uh, avidly opposed to thinking about the ocean, the deep ocean for too long. So <laughs> we're going to move <laughs> but, on. But, uh, you know, another interesting thing to s- talk about is just the prevalence of malaria at that time. And the name malaria, mal, means bad. bad and area, air. People thought that you got malaria from breathing bad air wow and and uh so you know quinine asbestos quinine was actually a you know i i did read on pubmed that um it, it got to a point where the efficacy of quinine they they did some more intensive studies on it. like people had anecdotal evidence you know aunt martha came down with malaria we gave her yeah. some quinine and what do you know it saved her life yeah you know but like doing some more like you know like fda level review of this drug it's like yeah but it also does this this and this to you so i think it's kind of fallen out of regular use for that kind of treatment yeah it also but it was used shuts all down up. your nervous system <laughs> <laughs> well it was used all the way up to world war one uh for wow. for uh troops using it that were fighting overseas and battling malaria. had malaria just on the pot all day and here's just another speaking of that here's just one more interesting fact about lewis and clark that i learned recently well probably a few years ago listening to a podcast on them um 
Another thing that they stocked up on, so uh, Dr. Rush, um, I can't remember his first name, but uh, he was like a, a famous, like very well-known physician at that same time, you know, late 1700s, early 1800s. And he had invented some of his own medications, and one of them were Rush's Thunderclap pills, which were like mercury pills. Really? And if you had malaria or like a, a bad fever, that was just like a fix-all pill to take. Nice. And so... <clears throat> I need me a Thunderclap they, pill. Well, they can track places where the expedition stopped and camped still to this day um, uh, because those, you know, they had... the. All those guys battled major sickness at different times throughout the, yeah. the years of the oh, expedition. Sure. And so, you know, they'd have terrible diarrhea, and they'd be taking these mercury pills. So they'll find, like, these mercury deposits, you know, in the middle of nowhere. Oh. And it's because at one point some guy was squatting there after he took his thunderclap pill uh, to treat his uh, malaria or whatever. So that didn't kill him basically instantly? Well, you know, I think some people... So, you know, of course, the unfortunate end of Meriwether Lewis after the expedition was he killed himself, right? Yeah. And he seems to have gone crazy. And it could oh. it could be, it could be, you know, he just had, you know, he had some mental illness battles. That or he, he took too many thunderclaps. Right, exactly. That's crazy. Because he was one of the sickest, he was one of the sickest people on the expedition multiple times. He was like totally bedridden for weeks. And that's uh, crazy. So he was pumping those thunderclap pills, and man. So some people think that maybe that kind of don't it. pump the thunderclap pills. Yes. Take them in moderation. <laughs> you heard it here first. Yeah, man. Cool. Cool. Little facts though, about the prairie quinine being used man. for malaria. We're going to hand harvest it this week. After doing the carnivore, I wonder how they survived. Like just because a lot of their diet was just meat. Not all yeah. the time. Nine but, pounds a day. But like many many months of their time there they were just eating meat and i just don't understand it joe Rogan well, they, would, be they proud. would they would find they would find berries and they would eat roots and uh sacagawea or sacagawea however you want to say it um i think both ways are probably acceptable um she taught them a lot of, of different things that they could eat from a more of a fiber or veg you know, vegetable, yeah. fruit. Standpoint. I couldn't imagine the the intestinal relief they got after <laughs> disca- after uh, meeting her. All right, guys, we're we're way over. We're way over. Yeah, but this was a fun one. Yeah, this was good. Thanks for hanging out. Don't forget, we're presented by Dad. I know I said that at the beginning, but uh, it's his birthday, so yeah, happy give him birthday, another Carol. shout out. If you're looking for native seed, don't forget you can check it out at Hoxie Native Seeds for larger orders or for smaller orders. You can go to theprairiefarm.com. Talk soon.